Matthew chapter 17. Let's turn together in God's Word, Matthew chapter 17. And we'll direct our focus and our attention this morning to Matthew 17, verse 6. And really, our text this morning is a part two of our text last week, but we've given it a different title and focusing on the last half of the section. Last week together, we looked at the transfiguration of Christ, Matthew 17, verses 1 through 6. Today, we pick up at verse 6, and we will read through verse 13. Matthew chapter 17, verse 6, And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces, and they were greatly afraid. But Jesus came, and he touched them, and said, Arise, and do not be afraid. Now, when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Now, as they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. And the disciples asked him, saying, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Jesus answered and said to them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first. And will restore all things, but I say to you that Elijah has come already. And they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, or in the same way, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. Verse 13, then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. Well, the grass withers and the flower thereof falls away, but the word of Our God lives and abides forever. Amen. So we come to our text this morning in Matthew's Gospel. I want to remind you of the question that I asked us to consider last week at the beginning of the message. And the question was this. What are you looking at? In the trajectory of your life, in the path of your daily sojourning and your walking, what has your gaze What is it that you find yourself thinking upon, looking at, meditating upon? And that had to do with the senses in regards to our sight. What are you looking at? But this week, this morning, I want to ask you this question. And it's in light of this question, the shepherding care of Christ. That is the title of the message this morning, the shepherding care of Christ. This week, I want to ask you this question is, who are you listening to? Not only who are you looking at, but this morning, who is it that has your ear? I'm an audible person. There's literally a company called Audible, as you know. Auditory may be the right term to to use. I've always been hard of hearing, and so I value that gift, that sense that God has given. And so being that way, we have many voices I enjoy listening to to books on tape. I enjoy listening to all kinds of things. And we are really in the the glory age, if you will, of auditory content. Venues, streams, Spotify, iTunes, YouTube, anything, you name it. Just tons of voices and noise that are in our world today, both good and helpful and also both bad and things to stay away from. As we think about seeking to have the mind of Christ. But who is it that you are listening to, church, this morning? Whose voice is, we could say, authoritative in your life? As we think about the message this morning, 
Notice what Jesus, what the God the Father said of his son Jesus, and we considered it last week in verse 5, when suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. Who are you listening to, church? Visitors who are here this morning, who are you listening to? And I trust and hope this morning that you're listening to the Word of Christ. So we look here at our text this morning. What we find is that Jesus is affirmed not only because of His own authority. Jesus is affirmed not only because of His own powerful preaching and the miracles that He performed. Jesus is affirmed for the second time in Matthew's Gospel. The first at His baptism. Here now at His transfiguration by God the Father. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. In fact, Deuteronomy tells us that this would be the sure sign of the prophet that when he comes in the power of Elijah, when he comes in these ways that we are to listen to him, that God's people were to listen to him, the Messiah. Here, God the Father makes no mistake about it, just who Jesus is. He is the Messiah. How can we know? Look no further than the authoritative affirmation, the voice of confidence of God the Father. This morning as we look here in our text, notice with me in verse 7, we now want to move our attention to the shepherding care of Christ. What we have here in the life of Peter, James, and John is really a traumatic experience, but traumatic in a good way. An encounter with God is always traumatic if truly we have encountered God. We, we know the stories of people uh, throughout history in our modern day. They will announce, they will write a book, and they'll say that they had an encounter with God while they were eating their breakfast. They saw the Cheerios and the bowl come together to form a message, and it dawned on them at that moment that Jesus was speaking to them. Or others have said while they were shaving on their way to work that God spoke to them. And you say, well, Grand, what are you talking about? Exactly. What are we even talking about? That's, that's the question. That's what we say to them. What are, you, what are you even talking about? Every encounter with God that we see in the text of Scripture is mind-numbing. It is mind-blowing. They are moments to where the men and women of God say, I am unworthy. Have mercy upon me. I am unclean. It's in this context that the disciples experience really Jesus as pastor. And that's the way I'm phrasing it today. Jesus as their shepherd. Notice number one, the comfort that we find here and see in this text. We can say the comfort that Jesus provided, verse 7. But Jesus came and he touched them. Who? The context, Peter, James, and John. Literally, Luke, we saw last week, tells us that after they saw the transfigured glory of Christ, they literally passed out. They were out cold. Jesus comes and he awakens them. Notice this comforting that is expressed in the touch. He comes and he awakens them. This is like a father coming to awaken his child in the morning, getting them ready for the day. What, what kind of touch is that? Well, how does a father who lovingly loves his child well, some of you say, well, you didn't know my dad. He threw a bucket of ice cold water. Well, okay, well, that it doesn't work for you. I get it. Here's the idea of a tender touch from God the Father, from Jesus the shepherd. Jesus came and he touched them. 
And he said, arise and do not be afraid. Why would Jesus say that? Because they were very afraid of what they just seen. Arise, do not be afraid. And when they had lifted their eyes, they saw no one. They don't see Moses. They don't see Elijah, as they had just seen in this transfigured vision, this glory of Christ shining forth. They don't hear God the Father. They see no one but Jesus only. So at the sight of the transfigured Christ, it seems Peter, James, and John experienced sensory overload, spiritually, physically. They fell unconscious. And we find that, as I've alluded to, that this is not uncommon in throughout the Scriptures. We see in Isaiah 6, verse 5, when Isaiah saw the heavenly vision of God reigning on His throne, that did he yawn? Did he move on from this experience and say, hey guys, it's at the school of the prophets, hey guess who I saw this morning? I saw God excuse me. I saw God reigning on his throne. And I think I'm going to write a book about it, Reader, maybe an article in Reader's Digest. No, that's what men today do. Not so with the men of Scripture. In fact, Paul says this, what I saw as I was transported to the third heaven is so unspeakable that I am not permitted to even, I don't, I don't even have a language, I don't have words to, to articulate what I saw. What did Paul not do? Paul did not go write a bestseller. Paul did not say, let me tell you about what I saw and how you can see it too. So many more. Isaiah says this, Isaiah 6 verse 5, Woe is me, for I am undone. Most people who say they see the glory of Christ or hear Christ talking to them or see some type of vision, they're not, why is it they don't say this? And if they do say this, then it really renders it non-operative because we have Isaiah saying this in Scripture. Woe is me, for I am undone. Thank you. That's what Scripture says. We get it. Right. Isaiah says, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Ezekiel, Ezekiel 128, when he sees the, the glory of God like the appearance of a rainbow, Ezekiel 128, in a cloud on a rainy day, so is the appearance and the brightness all around it. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. So when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard the voice of capital one, zero, O-N-E, capital one. I heard the voice of one God speaking. Just one other verse. I'll give you a litany of them this morning. Revelation 1.17, John says, And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. I, I thought I was a dead man. I just collapsed. This was the response of seeing the glory of God. But notice here in John's account, Revelation 1.17, but he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. Here in our text, we see Jesus doing just that. He is the shepherd coming to his sheep. These disciples are, but as the psalmist says, frail children of dust. The psalmist says he knows our frame, that we are but dirt. Here Jesus knows his disciples and their state. He knows their spiritual condition. He knows their spiritual level of their growing in the faith. And he knows how far they fall short. And he comes with tender care. He knows they're but dust. We here see Christ shepherding care and concern that he comes and ministers to his disciples. Here's what we're trying to say. Jesus is not exasperated with these sheep. Whereas we are quick to be short 
Jesus is not like, come on, guys. When are you going to get it? Get what? Well, what is Jesus trying to teach them in this ongoing section, what we've been looking at? What Jesus is teaching them is that he must go and that he must suffer many things at the hands of the religious leaders. That he will die, that he will be buried, and that he will rise Again, this is that segment of Matthew's gospel. He has turned in his ministry from the crowds and the the people, and he's now pouring into his inner circle. He's discipling them. He's preparing them as he fixes his face like a flint towards the cross. Number one, the comforting care of Christ. Secondly, I want us to note here in verse 9, notice the command that Jesus gives. The command that Jesus gives. The text says this, Now, as they came down from the mountain, Jesus gave a command to them, saying, Tell the vision that you've just seen, tell the vision to no man, tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. Here Jesus anticipates and knows what is the natural response that these men are going to have, but yet he also knows they do not understand what he's telling them. What is the command that Jesus orders of his disciples? The command is to wait. They're going to want to articulate, to describe, even to the other disciples, what they've just seen. But the truth is, the disciples are hitting a brick wall. They do not understand in their comprehension just exactly what Jesus is showing them. They do not understand in their understanding exactly what it is Jesus is saying and Revealing. Go back to chapter 16, verse 21, just a few verses prior. Remember, Jesus introduces this theme that from the time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and the scribes, and that he must be killed, that he must be raised the third day. And if you remember, Peter's like, What on earth are you talking about? No way, Lord, is that ever going to happen? There, Jesus says, Get thee behind me. Satan. It's here in our text that he picks up on this theme, this truth, but they are silent. They don't understand. Notice that in a minute when we see their response, it has nothing to do with what Jesus is saying. They say, what about? What about what? What about the, what the scribes are saying about Elijah? In other words, they're revealing that they do not get what Jesus is communicating to them about his Messiahship, what God has ordained, that he must go to the cross. They don't understand that he's not here to bring the kingdom now, which is what they want. They're looking for the dagger and the cloak and the assassin method. They're looking for the regime to take place now. They're looking for the throne to be revealed now. They're looking to have positions of power now. They're wanting to bring in all the glory now. They do not understand what Jesus is saying. So maybe we could read their minds here, which is always dangerous to do, but maybe if they ignore it, they're thinking, maybe it will just go away. Mark says this, Mark 9, verse 9, and Mark's account of this passage. Mark says this, Now as they came down from the mountain, Jesus, he commanded them that they should tell no one the things that they had seen, notice here, till the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept this word to themselves, questioning what the rising of the dead meant. Mark tells us, they hear this, but it's among themselves, like, what is he talking about? What is this rising from the dead? They do not see the cross in this Messiahship plan. 
The cross, the death of their Messiah is not part of the plan. So so what's the point? Here we see Jesus' shepherding care. He's patient with them. He's preparing them. Notice here, they don't understand now, but they will understand later. And therefore, it teaches us what? This is so powerful for us as we think about parents, as we think about shepherding in the life of the local church. All of us are shepherds in some sense. Husbands, you shepherd your wives. You're the spiritual leaders of your home. Fathers, you shepherd your children. Elders, you shepherd the church. In, in, in your area that God has given to you, where you are a missionary, you shepherd those that God has put within your sphere of influence. You strengthen and encourage. You share, you pray. And not everybody gets it right away, church. Behold Jesus' patience. In fact, Luke chapter 22, verse 31, Jesus gives, in another passage, Peter a preview of Peter's future. And let's just turn there briefly. You'll see in Luke 22, 31, Peter does not have a capacity to understand what Jesus is talking about. And Jesus loves him enough to tell him, Peter, this is what you're going to do. And here's how I'm going to be faithful to you. And Peter does not have an ability to fathom what Christ is talking about. But in the sequence of time, in the process of time, Peter fulfills exactly what Jesus says. And it's in that moment he remembers what Jesus had told him. That Jesus was shepherding him. That Jesus was preparing him. Look there at 22, Luke chapter 22, verse 31. Luke chapter 22, verse 31. And the Lord said to Peter, he said, Simon, Simon, getting his attention. He says, indeed, Satan has asked for you. We don't have time to talk about that, but let that hit hard. Satan has asked for you. Friends, listen, if we didn't have the next phrase that comes next, We'd lose sleep at night over that phrase right there. Satan has asked for you. Wait, what? He even knows who I am. He's asked. He doesn't only know who you are. He wants you. He wants to destroy you. Notice what comes next, though. That he may sift you as wheat. Verse 32, but I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. Behold the intercessory advocating work of Christ. What what is Christ doing here? He's shepherding Peter. He's letting him know, Peter, when you see me, it's not just me. Behold, I'm not just flesh. I am the Son of God. Peter, I have prayed for you. I prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, when, in other words, and when you fail in the sense of you drop the ball, remember this, and when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. But he said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you, both to prison and to death. And I believe Peter meant it. Peter, as we've seen, is not a man who is seemingly trying to give empty words. He tries to do what he says he's going to do. He's noble. There's so many admirable things in this way about Peter. Peter's not someone that sits and soaks in the pew. 
He's the person that says, sign me up. And he's the person that needs to say, Peter, thank you, but we need to give other people an opportunity to serve. But thank you, Peter. That is so noble about you. We, we love that about you. Thank you. Thank you for stepping out on. Thank you for being, for, thank you for having a desire to serve. Behold, just the faithfulness of Peter in that way. But he said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Then Jesus said, he said to him, he said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you will deny me three times that you even know me. You say, what what, was our point here? The point here is that in Matthew 17, behold the shepherding care of Jesus. Here is another example of Christ shepherding Peter, helping to understand, get, being so kind enough to help him to understand that your worst moment has not happened yet. It's on the horizon. And when it happens, behold, I've prayed for you. And when it happens, behold, know this, Peter, that no man will snatch you out of my hand, not even Satan who desires to sit you as wheat. And when your failure comes, Peter, know this, I want you to strengthen the brethren. I want you to know that I have a role for you. I have a place for you. But Peter, you're going to deny me three times before this day is even through. The point is this. Peter had no way to fathom or to understand what Christ is shepherding him to understand. What Jesus is telling Peter is a result of what you go through, Peter, you will be a more faithful shepherd to the sheep. Peter, you will be patient. The Peter that we will find in the epistles in 1 Peter and 2 Peter is a totally different man than the Peter we see in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's called the effect of grace. It's called God's kindness, and it's called sanctification of the Spirit through the Word. In John chapter 13, verse 6, then, came, then, he came, then Jesus came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, why are you washing my feet? And Jesus answered and said to him, What I'm doing, notice here, you do not understand now, Peter, but you will know after this. What happens after this? Well, what happens after this, we find in John 14. I'm just trying to show you some cross-references in Scripture here. The enabling work of the Holy Spirit helps him to understand. John 14, 26. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will be the one. He will teach you all things, and he will bring to your remembrance all these things I said to you. What things? These things I'm telling you now that you don't understand. And when later on down the road... When it dawns on you, what was he, is this what he was saying? The Holy Spirit will be your teacher. He will be your guide. And he will bring to your remembrance all these things that I said to you. John 14, 27, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. You have heard me say to you that I'm going away and then coming back to you. If you've loved me, you would rejoice because I said, I'm going to the Father, for my Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it comes that when it does come to pass, so that you may believe. Notice that phrase. I've told you before it comes, so that when it comes, when it does come to pass, you may believe. Behold the shepherding care and ministry of Christ. Church, how is it that we come to understand tomorrow or five years from now, what we do not understand today. Why is it that we can hear faithful teaching and preaching in small groups and from this pastor when we're at that church and God moves us, he turns the page and we now go to another church. There are seasons of our life. Many of you, you've been in different teaching settings. You've been in, uh, you're just bombarded with the word of God. But why is it that in your 40s, all of a sudden one day 
you get something that it dawns on you, that's what I've been struggling to understand this whole time. Why now do you understand it now? Here's the answer. The enabling work of the Holy Spirit. He is the one who leads you into all truth. So what is our takeaway? Well, behold the shepherding care of Christ. Church, be patient. Be patient with yourself in this sense, but also be patient with others. Behold, our faithful shepherd here continues to shepherd his sheep in the same way. One of the most helpful things I've ever found as a young pastor in the ministry many years ago, just beginning out, was hearing Mark Dever say that patience is the pastor teacher's superpower. Patience that comes from God. Patience. Loving the church as he loves the church. Loving the bride as he loves the bride. Faithfully loving the sheep. Don't get frustrated with yourself when you don't understand something in the first Bible study or setting. And don't be impatient with others when they don't get it the first month or the first year or the first decade. Be patient. There are things that we experience in the immediate that we don't understand. But church, take comfort and know this, that in all time, he will make things clear. One day we will. There are things that you are going through right now that you don't understand. It's confusing. It's disillusioning. It could be a trial, a loss, a betrayal. And you're wondering, God, what on earth could you do through this? Yet in time, as he faithfully pours out his grace... You, like Joseph, can look back and say, wow, I didn't realize it at the time, but that worked out not only for my good, but I'm not even really the point. The point is here, look at what God's done for his people. What my brothers meant for evil, God has worked about for his glory and for the good of the nation, for the whole redemptive purposes of God in Christ. We're not the point of the story. Jesus is, church. So what do we do? So we think about the shepherding, comforting, faithful care of Christ to Peter, James, and John. It's just a reminder to us that our life is not all about us. Sometimes we don't realize uh, what God's been teaching us until a later point. Sometimes we don't understand why God allowed it until one day he reveals to us the exact reason why. There's future chapters. Listen here, don't miss this church. I feel like I'm losing some of you. There are future chapters of ministry for you. I don't know who you are or who the Lord wants to hear this, but listen, your days of ministry are not done. You may think they are, but they're not. There's things that you went through in your 20s that God wants you as a Titus 2 woman to teach a younger woman in the church right now. And you're sitting there wondering, in the moment, you struggled through that, and God gave grace. You went down, you went up, and a part of your sanctification. But it's now, right now, maybe you're in your 70s, that there's a woman in her 20s that God wants you to mentor and disciple, like Titus 2 tells us to do, the older women of the church, loving and shepherding the younger women of the church. And then it dawns on you in the moment of discipleship, oh, God, this is what you prepared me for. This is what it's all about. In other words, discipleship is always about ministry, serving God and serving others. Men, there's struggles in doctrine maybe you've suffered for previously and you've took a stand for the truth. Maybe you've lost a job and you're wondering, you just can't get past the suffering that you've experienced and the difficulty of the trial or the scenario. In the moment, you didn't understand it. And all of a sudden, God brings your path across a younger man who's going through the same thing and he comes to you for counsel and says, I don't know what to do. 
If I do what they say I must do, I will lose my job. And that young man can look to you as someone who experienced the very same thing. And you can show him God's faithfulness, his grace, and you can say, listen, I'm a trophy of God's grace. And let me just tell you, it pays to serve God. It pays to to take a stand. It may mean loss, but what what we mean is, is I'm here to show you that God doesn't abandon his children. And like an older man, like a Paul to a Timothy, you didn't understand it at the time, but you understand it now. And you could tell them, you could say, listen, God is faithful. He's just, he's good. Just the example of Peter, John 21, 15, Jesus tells Peter three times, Peter, after his failure, he says, Peter, feed my sheep. I'm sorry, what did what, you say, Jesus? Yeah, feed my sheep. Really? Like you have a there's, a, there's a, there's a role for me, Peter? Feed my sheep. And what does Peter tell us in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1? Peter says this, think this is not... This Peter with a sword ready to chop off ears, ready to rebuke Jesus, being interrupted by God when Peter says, it's good for us to be here. And God says, shut up, Peter. This is my beloved son and whom I'm well pleased. Just stop talking. You mean there's a, there's a future for Peter with that mouth? Yes. Three times, John 21, Jesus says, feed my sheep. How? First Peter 5, Peter says this, the elders who are among you, I exhort. I am also a fellow elder. Wait. You, Peter, the one who denied Jesus? Absolutely. Listen, he is the God of the second chance and the third and the fourth and the fifth. Amen? Listen, he does, if you're his child, he will not abandon you. No man can pluck you out of his hand. It doesn't excuse our sin. It doesn't give us a license to sin. But when you sin, when you're in the darkest moments of your life, when you wake up and you say, how did I get here? I'm a Christian. I never thought I would do this. Is there a future for me? The answer is, notice here what Peter says. 1 Peter 5, 1. The elders who are among you, I exhort, I am also a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. And also, notice here, he says, a partaker of the glory that was revealed. What glory are you talking about, Peter? John, Matthew, uh, Matthew 17. He saw the transfigured Christ. That glory. And he says this. I'm a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. So what? Good for you, Peter. What do we do now? Verse 2, 1 Peter 5, he says, Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, not as being lords over those entrusted to you, but be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. What's the point, Legrand? Here's the point. What you go through, whether it's seeing, as Peter did, the transfiguration of Christ or failing Christ and his denial. Listen, what you go through is not just for you. In our narcissistic age that's wrapped up in self, your life is not about you. The Lord who gave his life for you with no reserve models for us what it is to shepherd faithfully, patiently. Models for us what it is to give our lives for others in love and care. To prepare others for what they don't understand today, but to patiently, as iron sharpens iron, Proverbs says, to sharpen, strengthen, even if it means friction. We have a day and age where people can't even talk to each other. If you don't tell me what I want to hear and I don't tell you what you want to hear, then we can't talk to each other. No, no, that's not, that's not what even what fellowship is. 
as iron sharpens iron. Well, how is iron sharpened iron? It means that there's, there's contact, there's interaction. Sometimes there's friction. We don't, we're not trying to paint a picture that every time we come together we argue. That's, that's not what we're trying to say. But it just means there's a sharpening effect. One like this where Paul describes in 2 Corinthians 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our tribulation. Why? Notice, Paul says, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble. Well, how do we do that, Paul? With the same comfort that we have experienced, which we ourselves have been comforted by God. Paul here says, listen, you faithfully, daily experience the shepherding work of God in Christ. Why, church? Behold his shepherding care here in Matthew 17, so that you may be an example so that you may model that shepherding care so that you may be patient as you think about loving the church the bride discipling the new believer teaching the new believer sound doctrine which they do not understand on day one i'm convinced i know i'm camping out on here on point number two but it's just too important it's just way too important. I'm convinced that the problem in the church today is we may bring people to faith in Christ, but we don't have the patience to disciple them. It takes years. It takes effort. It takes time. It takes investment. It takes patience. And the church needs to look in the mirror of God's word and say, do I need to repent that my life is all about me and that I don't have the time and the care and the patience to invest in those that God has brought across my way, beginning with our own children. May the Lord help us as we look at these examples from both Peter and Paul, and really the ultimate example is Jesus in Matthew 17. Number one, the comfort that Jesus provided. Number two, the command that Jesus gives. Number three, notice how the disciples just completely miss this. I'm not going to spend any more time talking about that. It's just so obvious. Number three is the confusion that they experience. Verse 10 says this, and his disciples asked him, asked Jesus, saying, When do the scribes say that, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Think about what they've just seen. Think about what Jesus is telling them. And they do not have a capacity. This is what makes this so hard. If you're bored with this text, it could be that I, the, the bad preaching, I get that. But it could also be that we look backwards. It could be that we, we have the whole story. So we look at them and we're like, what are you, come on guys, you don't get it. They, they didn't. They did not see what you and I so clearly see. Remember the two disciples, Luke 18, that walking along the road of Emmaus, and they're just completely downcast. They're wondering what has happened and here Jesus expounds to them the whole Old Testament. It says that all of these things are referring to him, that he's the point, he's the key. That's what we understand, but they don't understand. So we got to remember that. The confusion, verse 10, they wonder why did the scribes, the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, those scribes, why then did the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Here, Peter, James, and John are really expressing what is the, maybe it seems to be like the current headline of the day. They hear the word on the street. Jesus has been rebuking the scribes and the Pharisees. Uh, Jesus has been giving them the truth. He's been pouring out himself to them, and they've rejected it. And Jesus has rejected them. And evidently what they're saying is that, well, the Elijah hasn't come, as was prophesied in the Old Testament. 
So if the Elijah hasn't come, then this man who says he is the Christ, this Jesus, who says he is the Christ, he can't be the Messiah if the Elijah hasn't come. You heard in the scripture reading this morning, John 1, they asked him, are you the Elijah? And what did he say? According to the scripture reading. This is why it's confusing, maybe even to some of you here today. He says, no, I am not Elijah. So we need to look at this just for a second. Who is John the Baptist? Because who John the Baptist is tells us about who Jesus is. So verse 10, they're confused. They completely really miss the moment. And they ask Jesus the word on the street. It's really surprising that the disciples even care what the scribes say, isn't it? So we think about our study of Matthew's gospel. How many times the scribes have been rebuked, confronted, put in their place? It really reveals the mind of the disciples that they even care what the scribes are saying. Yet we'll find in Matthew 23 that the scribes still sit, notice here, in Moses' seat. We're not going to turn there, but that's the phrase that's used. What does that mean? The scribes had the law of God. In other words, when the scribes read the law of God as it purely is, it does not do anything to the law of God. In other words, the law of God stands on its own two feet. The law of God has its own power. The law of God has its own authority. A, a broke clock is right twice a day. You could put it like that. Maybe that's a bad analogy. In the Old Testament, we see in the Balaam, we see a donkey used to speak forth for the name of God, right? So, so the point is, is the messenger is not the point. The word is the point. And the scribes still technically sit in Moses' seat. Yes, don't do as they do. They're hypocrites. Matthew 23 will tell us that. But what Jesus says, that when they teach the law of God as just simply the law, if they read the law of God, that's the law of God. That's the word of God. So what is it that the scribes taught? Well, believe it or not, the scribes taught something that was biblical. What was that? The scribes taught that there must be a forerunner to the Messiah, the Christ. They will know that the Messiah is here when the forerunner has come. There would be a forerunner. In fact, this was the basic understanding in the Jewish mindset. The scribes taught this. And we could ask the question, well, where did the scribes get it? Well, you heard it in the scripture reading this morning, Malachi chapter 4, verse 4. Hear the word of the Lord. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb, for all Israel with the statutes and judgments. Behold, notice here, God says, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. That's why the scribes taught Elijah's coming. And when Elijah comes, we'll know that the Messiah is about to come. Where do they get that? Malachi 4. Behold, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, I will send you Elijah the prophet, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the hearts of the children to the fathers. So we can ask this question, so where is the confusion? Well, the confusion lies in that Jesus is talking about dying. And Malachi chapter 4 talks about when Elijah comes, he's restoring it would be a national repentance. Malachi verse six, 4, verse 6. He will turn the hearts of fathers to the children and the hearts of children to their fathers. This is language for national revival. They're also confused in that they've just seen Elijah. Remember? Just last week in our lesson, you just go back a few verses. They look up into the text and they find that Jesus is standing there talking to Moses and Elijah. So this is fresh in their minds. 
They're thinking, what role does Elijah have? Where is he now? He's in heaven. D.A. Carson says this, the disciples' confusion was not merely chronological, in other words, who must come first, rather it referred back to their fundamental inability to make sense of the combination of glory and suffering. At this stage, their witness of the transfiguration glory of Jesus had, if anything, confirmed to them their misapprehension and confusion regarding Jesus. So if the forerunner Elijah comes, and through his ministry there is reviving through his preaching, then who would reject the Messiah? So these disciples are confused. Well, notice, if you will, turn over, well, we won't turn there, but in Luke chapter 1, I'll just bring the text to mind. When the angel comes to Zechariah and tells him that he will have a son, if you remember, he comes to him and tells him that his son will be given the power and the spirit of Elijah. He will be one who is mightily used of the Lord. He will not be, in that sense, the reincarnation of Elijah, but he will be like Elijah. Notice with me lastly, number four, verse 11, the clarification that Jesus gives. What is Jesus saying? Well, notice here, verse 11, the clarification that Jesus provides. Jesus answered and said to them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah has come already. Okay, you mean just now that we just know? Listen, but I say to you that Elijah has come already. And they did not know him, but they did to him, Elijah, whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. Then, verse 13, the disciples understood that he spoke to them regarding John the Baptist. Go with me back to Matthew chapter 4 briefly, and let's nail this home. A couple of you came up to me after the service last week and said, are you going to cover verses 7 through 13 of the transfiguration passage? And hopefully you're finding the answer today is yes. So is the answer is that, is Elijah going to be reincarnated? The answer to that is, is no. The idea of what Scripture prophesied is that one in the spirit of, like Elijah, is indeed coming. That's why verse 13 tells us the disciples realized he spoke to them of John the Baptist. Matthew chapter 3, let's just remind ourselves of exactly who this Elijah is. That when Israel sees him, when they hear him, they will know that the Messiah is here. Let's go back. Matthew chapter 3. In those days, verse 1, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, this is why he is like Elijah. He's in the wilderness. He's a rough man. This man is not invited, both Elijah or John the Baptist, to really be the the mainline keynote speaker at the popular conferences of the day. Listen, the place would not be the same. Uh, there would no be no happiness in the sense of, well, let's go out to Cracker Barrel afterwards and just have ourselves a good time in, in the Lord, in Yahweh. Now listen, wherever Elijah and the one who came in the spirit of Elijah came, there was a singular focus to their preaching and their ministry, which was this, repent, repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. By the way, this same message is just as unpopular today as well. Let's not act like this is, my goodness, those hardened days of 
of Elijah. Listen, do you stand up as a guest preacher? Look, Grant, will you come preach for us for our keynote day, our big day? I'm just going to tell you, they want all kinds of things, but what, they, what, what would really not be what the doctor ordered was repent. Repent. Well, much more we could say about that. But anyway, chapter 3, verse 2, in saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet, saying, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John himself was clothed in camel's hair. This is how he's like Elijah, with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region round about the Jordan went out to him, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism, he warned them. He said, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? Therefore... If your repentance is real, he's saying, verse 8, then bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not think to say to yourselves, well, we are of Abraham's seed. Abraham is our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he, notice here, who is coming after me is mightier than I. Remember John 1, John 3? John, are you the Christ? Behold, I am not the Christ, but he is the Christ. I'm not even unworthy, John, uh, John the Baptist says in John 1, to un undo the sandals on his feet. He must increase, pointed to Jesus. But John says, but I must decrease. Who are you, John? Well, I'm not the Christ. He's the one who comes in the spirit of Elijah. And when that forerunner is here, you will know that the Messiah is close at, at hand. Verse 11, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. But he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his weed into the barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now, turn with me just over one other passage right there, just a few verses later. Chapter 4. And notice chapter 4, verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, what was it? The same message that his forerunner preached, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John the Baptist, that's why in conclusion, John chapter 17, verse 13, the disciples realized who he was referring to. Who is Elijah? How will we know, Jesus, that you are who you say you are? We're confused. Well, listen, the forerunner has come. Elijah has come. It was John the Baptist. And if the forerunner is here, then that means the Messiah is here. And that Messiah that you just saw transfigured in a cloud of glory there on the top of the mountain, I am he. Now, I have plans and purposes for you that you don't understand, Jesus says. But listen, but you will. Behold the patient, loving, shepherding care of Christ for his feeble sheep. Friends, that's what we are. We may not look like much, but I want you to know we're not much. We're failed children of dust. We are clay pots. The value is not in, in, in who we are this morning, the outer shell, our, our personhoods, although we have image and dignity in the image of God, no doubt about that. The value that we have 
is the gospel that we carry in these clay parts of earthen, these jars of just broken clay that the potter comes along and he mends and he molds and he redeems and he puts the new heart and he puts the treasure of the gospel that shines forth. Friends, that's who we are. We are the sheep. We are the bride of Christ. May the Lord strengthen his church and build his church this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. We are comforted, Lord, to see you patient and loving with your your disciples. Father, thank you for being patient with us this morning as your disciples. Thank you, Lord, for your commitment to change. We don't like change, but change is a constant. Father, you're committed to our spiritual change. You're committed to morphing us and changing us into the image of Christ. You're committed to changing Grace Church into the beauty and the glory and the image of Christ. Father, this is, a, this is the body. And a body is constantly changing by your guidance and by your direction. If a body is not changing, it's dead. Father, thank you for your committed work to us individually, corporately. Father, thank you that you are committed to shaping us to the glorious image of Christ. We love you. And thank you for your shepherding care to us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.